Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Paul Davids, who wrote the Jedi Prince series of books best known for the glove of Darth Vader, as well as characters like Trioculus, Zorba the Hutt, and of course, the grandchild of Emperor Palpatine 30 years ago. I grew up reading these books, and so getting to talk about their creation was such a blast. And Mr. Davids sure knows how to tell a story. Uh, this is Talking Bay 94, episode 97, Paul Davids. I'd love, of course, to talk about Jedi Prince and all the, the Star Wars, but really before all of that, I think the career you had leading up to Jedi Prince and after is so fascinating in itself. And first, just to start, like, your experience growing up and what made you even want to kind of dive into that film and television realm uh, to begin with? Well, I was a sci-fi boy from the time I was in fifth grade. I fell in love with movies like uh, The Invisible Boy, Forbidden Planet, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. That was my generation. You know, but the thought that I would grow up to get to know Ray Harryhausen, to make a, uh, a film with Philip Abbott, who was one of the stars of The Invisible Boy, I mean, that... It just seemed impossible. Right. I mean, it was a dream, but um, I was making amateur eight millimeter films. In those days, we didn't have uh, video. We didn't have sound. I was uh, doing rudimentary special effects, stop motion with animation figures, monsters that I would create with a friend named Jeff Tinsley. Uh -huh. And we entered the famous Monsters of Filmland amateur movie contest. I met Forrest J. Ackerman, the editor of the magazine, when I was, uh, I must have been around 13, at the World Science Fiction Convention at the Statler Hilton in Washington, D.C. And uh, he invited me to uh, send him photos from the amateur movies, and they ended up in Famous Monsters. We ended up being winners. Wow, look at that. <laughs> That's incredible. So uh, I thought of myself as a future movie producer uh, from the time I was probably 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in those days, I wanted to be a special effects cinematographer. That's what we called it before there were digital effects. Right. I didn't pursue that career, but my son, Scott Davids, did. And he became prominent as a digital effects supervisor on around 40 major Hollywood movies uh, including the Sasha Baron Cohen movies, of which he was editor on two of them, including Borat, Bruno. So my son had had quite a career uh, in the direction I was thinking of when I was young. So I was a student at Princeton University, majored in psychology. I was actually pre-med in those days. I graduated in 1969, the year after The Yellow Submarine came out. I didn't really want to be a doctor. You know, I, I took all of the... The organic chemistry, everything, the med boards. Uh, but I always had it in me to uh, make movies. It was the night I saw Yellow Submarine in London, premiere, that uh, I switched course. Opening night in London. And uh, I sat through it twice. <laughs> and I just shook my head and said, I'm not going to medical school. <laughs> I want to I want to do things like Yellow Submarine. That's we only live once that we know of. That might not be true, of course, but anyway, I decided I was going to go to Hollywood. I I didn't know anybody in Hollywood except for Forrest J. Ackerman. My parents thought I had gone stark raving mad. 
But uh, my father did some research and he, he found that there were scholarships offered at uh, University of Southern California in cinema in cinema, if you uh, agreed that you would teach cinema after graduating, getting a master's degree. I applied for that. I did get a scholarship. And then somehow I was put in touch, I think it was my father's idea, with people at the American Film Institute. And an executive there, Richard Collenberg, told me, we are opening a conservatory in Beverly Hills. Uh, it was uh, fall of 1969. He said, we're accepting like 15 to 20 students from around the world in film. It's a complete fellowship to the Center for Advanced Film Studies. The AFI was just opening that year. He said, why don't you apply? Maybe you'd rather study with us than go to USC. So I applied and I sent them um, monster movies that I had made, animated cartoons I had made in 16 millimeter I had won writing awards at Princeton. I sent them short stories I wrote. I was called to an interview with the head of the AFI, George Stevens Jr., downtown in Washington, D.C. He said, you know, um, you're a great candidate. You're a little on the young side for those we're looking for. You're just out of college. He said, you know, maybe this would uh -huh. be better in a year or two, but we're certainly going to consider you. So I left the meeting depressed. And I was very, very happy when a few weeks after that, I received a call from Richard Collenberg saying, we want you, you're in. This was the greatest program anyone could imagine. First of all, the AFI in those days was at the Doheny Mansion in Beverly Hills, this extraordinary mansion. It's been used as a set in many movies and TV shows. <laughs> as a matter of fact, Columbo did one whole show there, uh, entirety, using it as a London mansion. But this place was fantastic. There was no tuition fee. They put up around $10,000 for me to make my first 16 millimeter sound film. So there I was with access to a lot of my heroes. I got to meet George Powell, the great master. I mean, he was George Lucas before there was a George Lucas. He did War of the Worlds. He did The Time Machine, The Conquest of Space, When Worlds Collide, all those great color early science fiction movies. He was a master and he became a mentor for me. He even, after I graduated at the AFI, offered oh. me to write a treatment of The Hobbit. He wanted to make The Hobbit. And I did do that collaborating with my wife on the treatment for George Powell, um, and uh, we were turned down everywhere. Wow. It, was, it was ahead of its time. <laughs> so those were my early days. I, I had the yeah. doors open to me for all of my, uh, my heroes. I, I, I met Robert Wise, George Seaton, uh, who wrote that wonderful Christmas film, The Miracle on 34th Street, and directed so many movies. Uh, he was a mentor and helped me with my film at AFI. But once I graduated, then began the terror, you know, I was on my own. We were all on our own after that. And uh, there were no immediate jobs. I wrote a few scripts, they didn't go anywhere. It took a few years, actually. It was around 1975 when walking on Sunset Boulevard, I passed a building, 9169 Sunset Boulevard, and out of the door comes Richard Collenberg, the man who had invited me into the American Film Institute in the first place. We hadn't seen each other in years. I was unemployed. He said, are you working? Are you making movies? I said, <laughs> no, right. no way, you know, haven't had good luck. 
So he pointed to the door uh, of the building and he said, well, I just started working here as an agent, the Paul Kohner Agency. Coincidentally, Paul Kohner has this pile of scripts for Charles Bronson and Max von Sydow and uh, Lee Volman and many of his other top clients. And he needs a script reader, an analyst. Would you be interested? I said, would I ever? I walked in the door and Brandon, within a half an hour, I was employed. <laughs> it was my first real job in the business. And what a job. Paul Kohner not only hired me uh, halftime to read scripts for him, but he got William Wyler on the line and, and, and he got William Wyler to agree to pay half my salary to work part of the time for him. And before I knew it, within about a year, I was in the Writers Guild of America because Paul Kohner had got me a job as a writer to collaborate with his client Cornell Wilde to adapt a book he had optioned called Killing Time by Thomas Berger and to write uh, a treatment with him. $1,500, three weeks of work. That was enough to get me into the Writers Guild oh, of yeah. America in those <laughs> days. I think the initiation fee probably swallowed up my whole salary. That was my first deal. And then over the next five years, I worked for Paul Kohner. It, it was a fantasy land. I mean, John Houston was one of his clients. And he sent me down to Puerto Vallarta a couple of times to meet with John Houston, who was then living in Elizabeth Taylor's house, connected by a bridge to Richard Burton's house. And I was bringing him scripts that were offered to him. He took me <laughs> snorkeling with him in the warm waters near Mismaloya. That was it. Doors had opened. You know, a career was beginning. But the real break for me, I think, that really opened the world of Hollywood to me was when I was hired at Marvel Productions to be the production coordinator of all of the original Transformers episodes. Now, I, I, I wasn't aboard for the first, I don't know, eight or nine. But then Nelson Shin, the executive producer, hired me uh, at the suggestion of Gerald Muller, who had been another AFI grad. And uh, there I was. So my name is uh, prominent on 79 of the early wow. Transformers cartoons. Right. And I got to write scripts. I wrote four of them. So there I was. I had credits, producer, production coordinator, writer. A short time after that, within a few years after that, two big things happened for me. A project I had struggled to launch for years called Roswell, got picked up by Showtime for us to make as an original television movie. Mm -hmm. We were filming that in uh, 1993, but we were in development on it uh, from about 91, 92. And I think it was starting in around 1990 when my wife and I got the contract to write the Star Wars novels that have become called the Jedi Prince series. We, we didn't call them that, yeah. but that name came along and it sort of right. stuck because right. um, Ken, the Jedi Prince, was the hero of, of those books. So that takes us up to, gee, it's about 30 years ago when we wrote six Star Wars books, starting with The Glove of Darth Vader, right. The Lost City of the Jedi, Zorba the Hutt's Revenge, Mission from Mount Yoda, Queen of the Empire, and last but not least, the story of Kadan. 
Prophets of the Dark Side. Right. And I understand you now are the owner of some of the original drawings from that book. I am. I was trying to find it before this. I have the original drawing of when Kadan is pointing at the Emperor Palpatine on the screen saying, this is your, your grandfather, which now, I guess, is a part of Star Wars canon kind of in a roundabout way. So Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, we became canon very much through the back door because there were a lot of purists who attacked us. I think it was a great prophet named Bob Dylan who said, uh, everybody must get stoned. And some people think he was referring to marijuana. But if you listen to the words of the song carefully, he's talking about stoned, having rocks thrown at you. You know, everyone, you, we're, you get attacked. You put yourself out there in the world, and what you create is... Uh, is attacked. It just seems to be the way of the world. Some people uh, love the new movies, TV shows, and books, and the ones that hate them are the ones you hear from the loudest. Right, exactly. But in those days, no one directed us that we had to be within the canon of the existing Star Wars universe. Right. Here was the situation. There hadn't been a Star Wars movie for almost 10 years when we started writing these books. And uh, years went by and people were forgetting Star Wars and George Lucas was panicking. Right. So he wanted to keep Star Wars alive for your generation, really during that time waiting for the next movie. So people would anticipate the next movie. So a wonderful agent who then lived in New York named Peter Miller, he got to know me and he got to meet with the licensing department of Lucasfilm and he pitched me to write these Star Wars books. Uh, he said, look, he's been on the Transformers. He's been writing for the Transformers. This man knows robots. You won't get a better R2-D2 or C-3PO in books than right. this man. So they said, okay, well, let's see what his idea is. Now, my wife is an excellent writer also. And although I'm the one that works blank page, I stare at that blank page and I start coming up with all this new stuff, these ideas for the plots and the stories. But Hollis really helps to refine them, to look at the details, to find inconsistencies. And then I go at it that there's another draft. And then she picks over that and she comes up with some new ideas. So this really became a collaboration. But staring at that blank page, as every writer knows, that's the moment of truth. Uh -huh. I mean, it comes out of here, or you have writer's block, you know, right. one or the other. Well, the stories flowed pretty well. I, but first we had to write a presentation. What was our idea? Mm -hmm. So the idea, since environmentalism was becoming so topical then, was to have six books and figure out an environmental problem, probably caused by the empire, <laughs> that would be in each story. So in The Glove of Darth Vader, the first one, we encounter a species underwater called the Whaladons, mm. you know, who are in danger of being hunted to extinction. Right. And in the lost city of the Jedi, we're dealing with deforestation, forest fires. Right. Zorba the Hutt's revenge, a lot of it takes place in Cloud City. Right. And we're dealing with the pollution that's being caused by the Empire's munitions factory that's down below Cloud City. Then in Mission from Mount Yoda, we're dealing with um, extinction of a civilization on the planet Duro and the archaeologists there who are trying to preserve the remnant. It's like ancient Egypt, you know. Right. 
and the mission to preserve their culture before the empire uh, destroys it with chemical waste. We presented this as a pitch, a written proposal to Lucasfilm. And fortunately for us, they liked it. Uh But at that time, we're talking about 1990, Lucasfilm didn't own its own publishing company. Mm -hmm. So they were at the mercy of the New York publishers like every other writer. (laughs) Right going hat in hand saying, here's my idea, will you publish my book? And the problem was being almost a decade uh, away from The Empire Strikes Back, the editors in New York said, well, Star Wars old hat. (laughs) Who cares about Star Wars anymore? This this thing's going to flop. So for six months, through all these submissions from Lucasfilm, we get rejected again and again and again. And Return of the Jedi is going to be coming out. I mean, it was maddening. And we'd almost given up. Mm-hmm. It was really, you know, I was heart sick. But there's always that uh, uh, that bright lining, you know, that silver lining in every dark cloud. A New York editor named Charles Kochman, who was then at Skylark Books, mm-hmm. Bantam Books, now owned by Random House. He saw the proposal. He said, this is great. We have to do this. Of course we're going to do it. It's Star Wars. He was a big fan. So Charlie Kochman was our savior, and we got to write six books. I I think it took two years. Each book took about four months. Mm -hmm. We'd write a first draft. Lucasfilm would go over it. They would always check it for errors, inconsistencies, and they missed a few. And we got called out on that by some fans. I mean, I think there was once where we had Luke Skywalker flying an Empire vehicle, but... Uh, uh, But I think we said it was a modified vehicle, justified it. <laughs> so the rebels had captured it and they'd modified it and then right. he could fly. I don't know. Yeah. But the point is, okay, so we had a few inconsistencies, but we had to invent so many new things. There's so many new characters, new places, new planets, hologram fun world, you know, new worlds. Mm-hmm. And the basic new plot of who was going to be the leader of the empire after Darth Vader and the prophecy that he who rules the empire shall wear the glove of Darth Vader. (laughs) And then the whole concept that the empire had to put forth a phony to rule. And the reason for that, they call him Trioculus. He had three eyes. Well, the prediction was that the ruler would have three eyes. His third eye was right here. But he was not the chosen one. He was not the son of Palpatine. The son of Palpatine was being hidden away in an insane asylum. Right. His name is Triclops. His third eye is on the back of his head. Now, why were they keeping Triclops alive and hiding him? It's because at night he would have these terrible dreams in which he would invent incredible new weapons. And there they would be by his bedside as, as he would talk about it. And they'd write down all the formulas. Right. But when Triclops woke up, he didn't remember anything about that. But he was mad. He was just totally insane. They couldn't possibly let him rule the galaxy. So they had to hide him. And Triclops was the imposter that took his place. Now, I invented all this, and it, it's woven through the thread of the six books. Right. And there you have it. You you grew up reading these books. Yeah, it's very interesting, especially in those early days of in-between trilogies. And I think the, the legacy of, of these books especially are kind of you're going to continue to kind of see it progress as, you know, kids that grew up with them are now 30 years old 
and are, you know have jobs and are you know trying to do things like this. I mean, you guys actually remember these plots, <laughs> right? Exactly, and I think because I think it's so important with with Star Wars, especially to always view the the good parts of it, right? And I think with these books, especially, not only is is the writing and the story so interesting and so ahead of its time as we're seeing now with with Rise of Skywalker, but also like the illustrations and the cover, the Drew Struzan covers were incredible. And I think just all of that combined really put together a, a pretty adult package, but for a, a fourth grader, you know? So this idea of having books for young readers was to uh, get the younger generation at that time, around 1990, uh, attuned to Star Wars and be anticipating mm-hmm. the next trilogy. You were talking about, oh, how that the books are even... More relevance now because of... So in the... I don't know if you're aware. In the most recent Star Wars movie, the one that just came out in December, the the end of the movie is is the main character, Rey, finding out that she is the granddaughter of Palpatine. If, if you... Under, I mean, it was... You know, it's obviously not Ken, but it is so funny that that is happening yes. 30 years later. Because our main character, 30 years ago, was the Jedi prince named Ken. Mm-hmm. And he fantasized that he was the son of Obi-Wan Kenobi and that that's where his Ken name comes from. He didn't know. He's growing up underground in the lost city of the Jedi, which we invented. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, his, that's his hope. But just as, um, just as Luke Skywalker gets the incredible shock that Darth Vader is his father, mm-hmm. you know, we use that idea to give Ken this enormous shock in in book six when Kadan, the leader of the prophets of the dark side, tells him, no, no, it's not Obi-Wan Kenobi. Your mother's name was Kendalina. Um, and she was actually married to Palpatine's son, Triclops, that mad leader with the <laughs> third eye said, who invents all their weapons. And this is who Ken's father is. Uh, so that's a so Palpatine is his grandfather, yes. And as you say in the latest movie, now we have the idea that uh, Ray is the granddaughter. Right. Now, why haven't they made movies out of our stories and brought the? <laughs> you know, a, a few other books have mentioned some of the things we invented. I think the Prophets of the Dark Side shows up mm-hmm. in one of the other books. I know that Zorba the Hutt, mm-hmm. who we created as the father of Jabba the Hutt, shows up. But someone at Lucasfilm once told me, when I expressed my regret, they could have done these six books, you know, animation, and, and they could have done them. He said, you know what? When your agent negotiated your contract, he put something in there about you getting 10% of future projects. <laughs> use your characters. <laughs> and Lucasfilm certainly was going to do that. So they stayed away from your uh-huh. characters as though they were poison. Right. And I, I said to him, well, why couldn't they have called us up and said, you know, we'd like to do it, but we can't accept right. that, you know? <laughs> you know? Will you back off? Can we erase that clause from your contract? You know, can we give you a small bonus? I right. said, you know, write me a small bonus. <laughs> Take it away. Right. But nobody ever did that. Right, right. You know, nobody took that initiative. So that's that's a shame. They could yeah. still do it. I yeah. could still get it. I, do, I know that there's, a few, there's a, a few people at Lucasfilm, specifically in the story group currently, that love the books. And that, like, we'll talk about them every so often. Pablo Hidalgo always comes to mind as, as someone that has always been a champion of the book. But yeah, so who knows? I think, I think now especially we're seeing more and more, now that it's called Legends, right? The Expanded Universe is the Legends. I think we're seeing more and more 
of the characters of the plot lines or of whatever kind of integrating itself into a new Disney canon. I think Thrawn is a great example of kind of being now in the new stuff without necessarily adapting the books from the nineties. So I hope you'll agree that we had really interesting plots in those six books and they wove together from book to book. So that was, you know, some of my American film Institute training and some of my, uh, just my devotion to science fiction from the time I was really a little boy. I mean, I was, you know, my tag is sci-fi boy. And, and one, of, one of my many films I've made, because I'd like to talk about what I've done since. Yeah, please. And what I'm doing now. But one, one of my most popular films is called The Sci-Fi Boys, mm-hmm. released by uh, Universal, uh, went to television on the Sci-Fi Channel, but all around the world. Uh-huh. This was the history of special effects from the earliest days in movies up to Peter Jackson's King Kong. Mm-hmm. Universal at that time was getting ready to release uh, Peter Jackson's uh, King Kong, I think on DVD. And that's when they they picked up my, uh, my film, The Sci-Fi Boys, because Peter Jackson had agreed to be the host of it. Right. So I filmed Peter Jackson. I have George Lucas in it. I have uh, Dennis Murin. I have Steven Spielberg. I have Rick Baker. Mm-hmm. It's a whole panoply, right, Harryhausen, uh, who I got to know and visited a couple of times in London. It's a whole panoply of those who influenced science fiction. Mm-hmm. Forrest J. Ackerman, the editor of Famous Monsters, who I met when I was a kid, that magazine, he was editor for almost 200 issues. Right. He was a champion. He was a scholar of science fiction. Everyone gravitated around him and read his magazines and... and uh, wanted to visit his great collection of science fiction memorabilia. So all of this is incorporated into the sci-fi boys. Because I interviewed Dennis Muren as well. And the, yeah. that legacy of Ackerman is so, I think, important. I think that documentary that you, you made is is a perfect representation of all these people that defined what we now consider sci-fi, right? The, the 70s and 80s and 90s of sci-fi movies, but were inspired, like you're saying, by, by Forshay Ackerman and his... I think the responsibility he felt to champion voices like yourself, right, appearing in the magazine, I think is such a, a crucial thing to to remember moving forward, right? To be finding the the young talent and pushing them pushing them to the the forefront. You know, we dedicated uh, each one of the Star Wars books to someone we consider really important. And number six, Prophets of the Dark Side. Here's the dedication to Forrest J. Ackerman, Mister Sci-Fi, mm-hmm. creator and editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. I said, thanks for raising us on such a robust diet of primordial beasts, (laughs) automated robots. So we were ready to fasten our space belts when George Lucas pointed the way to the stars. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Well, I mean, so then after Jedi Prince, of course, the past years of now you making your own films and your own projects and your art, especially, what have you been working on? Where can people find that? And what what are you working on currently? I'd like to tell you about two of my latest projects just released. Now, the the first one is a 12-part series, which you can find on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. It's called The Grand Kingdom of Cookie Land. They're short episodes. Each one is 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. I produced, I directed, and I operated all the puppets. (laughs) It's about 20 or more puppets in it who live in this imaginary kingdom called Cookie Land. Mm -hmm. And uh, children, well, principally a fifth grade girl, 
uh, visits Cookie Land and encounters these puppets. And they're having problems in Cookie Land because the king and queen, King Cookie Crumble, mm-hmm. Queen Gumdrop, have been mysteriously and magically transformed into birds. Mm-hmm. No one knows who did it and no one knows why. So uh, a little girl named Dory Vale shows up with her lie detector and she offers to help the king and queen find out who did it so they could be transformed back. So she questions all these different puppets and you see a lot of them are liars. They're all concealing stuff. They're, they're, they're exaggerating. They're denying that they know anything or had anything to do with it. And you've got all these different types of animal uh, characters. You know, there's the alligator uh, and the bunny and the bear and raven named Nevermore who tells all the secrets, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm the raven. You gotta come a little closer if you want to hear my secret. Come a little close, close, close. You're too close. You're too close. I'm not gonna tell a secret if somebody gets that close. Get back, get back, get back. These wonderful characters Mm -hmm. inhabit this world. And then there's there's Uncle Vinny, who is sort of the Mr. Rogers of the show. Mm -hmm. He sort of tells us about Cookie Land. And, you know, he says, boys and girls, you know, Pontificus is a pirate. You wouldn't trust a pirate, would you? No, 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 no. You can't believe anything Pontificus says. And then we hear Pontificus saying, well, you're prejudiced against all the pirate peoples. <laughs> things against me. I never steal anything. Oh, I borrow a few things once in a while that I don't return, but I intend to return them. Well, that's Pontificus the Pirate. Right. So... It's a wonderful, wonderful series, and it is really aimed at what your age was probably when you started reading our Star Wars books. Right. So, you know, I think very young kids would enjoy it, certainly the moms and dads and the grandparents, and, um, you know, fifth graders, as a fifth grade girl stars in it, there's adult humor in it, too, mm-hmm. because there's a queen of a land called Cakeland, mm-hmm. an evil queen who wants to take over Cookie Land. Uh-huh. And uh, she's ready to outlaw cookies. See, they only eat cookies in Cookie Land. Right, of course. She's from Cake Land. She wants a law that they can only eat cake. Uh-huh. So one of my French friends says, oh, you're, you're incorporating Marie Antoinette Let them uh-huh. into children's series. This is wonderful. Right. So there's stuff for adults. Mm-hmm. So that's one of my new projects, Amazon Prime, Grand Kingdom of Cookie Land. Awesome. Let me tell you about the other one. It's a book series I've been working on for five years mm-hmm. with a collaborator, Melanie Joy Bacon, who's actually been working on it since she was an elementary school wow. student many wow. years ago. She started drawing some characters that she called the Gimwits. I got to spell that. G-I-M-M-W-I-T-T-S. Uh-huh. So remember, there's two M's and two T's in The Gimwits. Right. So you can go to thegimwits.com. We now have four adventure books. I love basing these things on my previous experiences, so I took the model of the Jedi Prince Star Wars books, mm-hmm. which all have a glossary at the end of all the interesting right. terms the new character so the gimwitz books they all have glossaries at the end and in the star wars books we have the pictures of all the characters and the explanations of who they are and in the gimwitz same thing sure these are also around the same length as the star wars books oh but one big difference is all the illustrations here and there are lots of them Mm -hmm. are in color 
in uh, the Star Wars books, they were black and right. white. Uh, June Brigman, I think, did the original uh, drawings, and Carl Kessel did the actual art. Mm -hmm. So Melanie Joy Bacon is the artist for the Gimwits, and uh, at thegimwits.com, mm -hmm. you can now get the four adventure books as eBooks, or you can get the big book, which sort of incorporates them them uh, them all. Uh, I, I love the the smaller books, that, you know that kind of break up the adventure like right. we did with Star Wars. So the first book is uh, uh, Prince Globond, the future king. We have uh, Prince Globond's rescue plan. And then we have Prince Globond conquers the curse because this prince has been having problems. He said uh. a curse on him from the Waste Kings who are the evil Gimlets. Uh. And lastly, we have Prince Globond and Dazzling Fountain. Dazzling Fountain is the source of all energy for the Gimwit universe. So what did we have in the Transformers? We had the Energon cubes, right? Uh -huh. All those battles were about Energon. Well, here the Dazzling Fountain is as old as time itself, and it's the source of all light, goodness, energy, but the evil ones are not happy about the Dazzling Fountain. So okay. I encourage you to visit thegimwits.com, get those eBooks. I know you'll enjoy them. Uh, and then, of course, the Grand Kingdom of Cookie Land. Those are the two latest, newest projects. Yeah, yeah. I stay stay busy, Brandon. Yeah, that's an understatement for sure. But I appreciate you taking the time out of that busy schedule and, and talking to me about, about those books you wrote 30 years ago and, and so much more that you've done. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Brandon. It's a real privilege to get a chance to uh, unload all that. <laughs> <laughs> that was so great. Thank you again to Mr. Davids for such a fun interview. As mentioned in the show, if you're interested in checking out any of his projects, you can visit the links in our show notes. And thank you to everyone who left such wonderful reviews on Apple this week. Uh, if right now you could go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review, it is so appreciated because it helps people find the show. Uh, but that's all for this week. Until our next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, May the Force be with you.